This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. All right, let's uh, have a time of prayer together. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for caring for us. We thank you uh, for being our father, for being a good, good father. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice that you've made for us. And Holy Spirit, we thank you for indwelling us and gifting us. And we pray that uh, you would teach us during this time. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So this week I had the opportunity to speak to a few different local folks via phone and make some new connections, some pastors and things like that. But like many conversations when first meeting someone, we spend a few minutes playing the game, who do you know that I know? It's a fun little way to see um, if you have any shared connections. And more often than not, in those sorts of situations, it seems like there are shared connections. It's interesting, I think, to look back in life, too, and in a similar way to try to connect uh, the dots between people and events. But sometimes, you know what, those can really only happen a long time after the fact. Um, And so one of my mainland pastor friends, his name was Phil Ruge Jones, and he was recently sharing about his buddy who was fond of telling Ben for stories. Ben for stories uh, kind of do this very thing. They connect the dots between past people and places and events. And, you know, each of us uh, has a good Ben for story or two. The whole premise of this genre of story, Ben for stories, is this. If it hadn't been for this, then that wouldn't have happened. So let me share with you a Ben for story from my own life, like uh, how I ended up uh, at, at Bible college, and uh, well, I'll tell you that one another time. I'll tell you this one about how I, how I got fired from uh, a couple of Christian jobs. I'll just tell you one of those. Uh, both jobs are from Christian workplaces, and I've only ever been fired from Christian workplaces. Now, before you panic and think that there's something shady going on in the background, I will say that in both cases, I was vindicated, and the firings were taken back. Nothing shady, at least on my side of things, was happening at all. But again, I've been vindicated both times, and in both instances, unfired. So let me just share one of those with you. That's what I'll do this morning. And maybe in the coming weeks, I'll share some more of those. But um, the first time that I was ever fired from a job was while I was a camp counselor at a Christian summer camp. And uh, my supervisor, he wrongly accused me of leaving my group of campers, my group of students. I did no such thing, Uh, but he was trying to say that I did. Such a thing wouldn't have even crossed my mind, because we were trained not to do that, but he accused me of it, and then he fired me for it. Now, let me just back up a step. That summer, the Sunday before I was leaving uh, for this very job, one of my great friends, his name's Kelly Rose, he's the guy who uh, did the music at mine and Christie's wedding, Uh, he laid his hands on me and prayed prayed for me before I left for camp. And when he finished that prayer, just out of the blue, he goes, you know what? 
you're going to meet your wife this summer. It was rather bizarre, right? Looking back, um, it was like a prophetic moment in my life. I was a junior in college, uh, and I was just in my hometown visiting church, and he said that to me after a prayer right before I left, and I laughed out loud thinking, I'm a college junior, no way I'm ready for marriage, and so I left, and I went to work at that camp the same day. Um, and it was the last week of that summer camp when my supervisor, he made that uh, false claim about me, about leaving my campers, and I didn't, and so he fired me. And when I was challenging him on it, uh, he stopped me, he looked me right in the eye, and he said, look, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's something divine about this. He said, I don't know what it is, but I just have to do it. And there's something divine about it. And again, that was very bizarre. In my mind, this guy was just using God as an excuse right, to, to do what he wanted to do. I was furious about that. I was using God like that. I left immediately, and I went to the head guy of the camp, uh, the big boss, and he looked into the whole situation, and he found that I hadn't done anything wrong, and he hired me back within 24 hours the very next day. I was vindicated. But there was a change. No longer would I be working the same job as that camp counselor that I had been doing all summer. I'd now be working at the camp skate park, which... It actually freed up the majority of my day, and because of that, I was able to ask Christy out on a date. And I tried to talk to her a few times before that summer, and I didn't really get anywhere. Uh, but now she gave me a chance, and we went on our first date, we got a pizza, and we sat in the Papa John's parking lot in Seymour, Indiana. And then we went and we sat on a hillside and talked theology. I was probably the one talking theology, but still, to me it was a good date. Uh, if it hadn't been, if it hadn't been for right, that chain of events, we probably would have never dated. We probably would have never married, never had this family, never been on this island. Right? So looking back and connecting the dots between those two bizarre moments, the guy praying over me before camp, and then the getting fired for no good reason, I can't help but think that God had a hand in that. And I'm sure that each of you have your own great Benfer stories. I want to hear them. And let me just say this, you know, I mentioned last week that I've officially been here at the bridge uh, for a year now. But what's kind of sad to me is that the entire second half of my time here has been one where I've not really been able to get to know you folks. You know, in most cases, the first year for a new pastor is one of really getting to know people. It's hanging out with them, having meals, going to their houses, uh, having them over, etc. I got to do with some. I got to do some of that with some of you before COVID, but you know I've never gotten to really do that as much as I, I wanted to. So I'm really looking forward to COVID ending and and having those opportunities with y'all. If it hadn't been for COVID, I, I think I would have had a chance to share many great meals and times with y'all outside of uh, Sunday morning worship. In a way, I kind of feel like uh, the kid in a hard life situation who was forced to grow up fast so he could take care of things, right? He or she didn't get to enjoy that stage of being a kid because they were forced to grow up fast. I kind of feel like that. So, yeah, if it hadn't been for COVID, then, then things would uh, probably be different. But been for stories. We all have them. In fact, humanity's story is a really big been for story. If it hadn't been for humans turning away from God, 
we wouldn't be in the mess that we're in. And if it hadn't been for God turning toward us, we'd have no hope at all. Um, another been for story is that of Edward Moybridge. Uh, maybe you know that name, maybe you don't, but uh, if it hadn't been for Moybridge, uh, we probably wouldn't have the kinds of movies that we have today. Moybridge was a photographer in the late 1800s, and he's noted for developing the stop-motion genre. He figured out how to set up a system of cameras that filmed birds flying and horses running and other animals doing other things. And then he figured out how to, to put them in sequence and make them move so that it looked like a movie clip. And one of Moybridge's most famous clips has to do with the horse in motion. What he proved was that during a horse's stride, there's a moment when all four legs and feet are at the same time off the ground and in the air. Prior to this, when Moybridge figured out, the, the human eye, it just couldn't catch or perceive that fact. It looked like an uh, optical illusion. But Moybridge was able to show that, in fact, horses were completely mid-air while running. If it hadn't been for his creative thinking, if it hadn't been for his close observing, we might otherwise have never known such a thing. And there's a sense in which when we approach today's focal passage, Revelation 15, 1 through 8, and for that matter, all of Revelation really, if we're not ready to look closely and observe closely, we can miss some very important things. Or to put it differently, if it hadn't been for us looking closely, these would have been significant things that we would have missed. So let's read these verses, all eight of them. Chapter 15 is only eight verses. It comprises the whole chapter. And then there are a few things that uh, I'd like to draw your attention to. So here's what the text says. And I saw another sign in the sky, great and amazing, the seventh messenger, that is the Holy Spirit, having the, the seven final plagues, that is all the plagues, because in them the anger of God was complete. And I saw as a glassy sea mixed with fire, the ones who overcame out of the beast and out of his image and out of the number of his name, standing upon the glassy sea and having harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your works, Lord God Almighty. Your paths are just and true, King of the nations. Who will not fear, Lord, and glorify your name? Because only you are upright. Because all the nations come and will bow down before you. Because they have seen your righteous deeds. And after these things, I looked, and the temple of the tent of the testimony opened in the sky. And the seven messengers, that's the fullness of the Holy Spirit, went out, the ones having the fullness of the plagues, the seven plagues, out of the temple, wearing bright linen and fastened around their chests gold belts. And one of the four living creatures, that is the church, the bride of Christ, gave to the seven messengers, the Holy Spirit, the seven gold vials filled with the anger of God, the one living into the ages of ages. And the temple was mixed with smoke from the glory of God and his power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues, that is all the plagues, the complete plagues of the Holy Spirit, the seven messengers, should be complete. All right, let's walk back through each of these verses and, and get a handle on this text. As we do, let's just look closely and try to see some things beyond the surface of the text. 
In particular, there are five or so things that I really want to focus in on. So if we go back to 15.1, we have here John seeing another sign in the sky, and he sees the messenger, the Holy Spirit, holding the seven plagues in the seven vials. Vials are just bowls. And the fullness of the anger of God reaches its fullness in these vials, these, these seven vials. These seven vials are full of God's wrath that stems from God's anger. It's going to be, as we read last week, poured out on the city of Rome or the empire of Rome and have a part in Rome's destruction. Now, one of the first things that I want you to see is this. The seven vials full of the plagues parallel with what we read earlier in Revelation about the seven trumpets. The plagues there, they follow largely the same order as what we get here. But there are some differences. Still, it's really interesting to note how John's reusing that pattern from before in Revelation. And as we read on into Revelation 16 and further than that, we'll get more details about the plagues uh, in the vials or bowls. So that's the first thing. John is reusing an earlier portion of Revelation or building on an earlier portion of Revelation. But here's the second thing. Both sections of Revelation, the seven trumpets and the seven vials, um, the earlier portions uh, of chapters 15 and 16, they take inspiration uh, from the Old Testament book Exodus. Okay? In fact, Exodus 7 uh, through 12, or more particularly 714 to 1230, that's where we read about the ten plagues. And in the coming chapters, we're going to see that John will use five out of those ten plagues of Egypt. Which brings up another point. In Revelation 11 through 13, John is really drawing on Genesis, right? You remember me saying all that. But here in 15 and 16, he's going to draw on Exodus. So now he's making a shift from Genesis to Exodus. And we'll see more of that in just a minute. So again, just like Moybridge's exercise in looking closely at the running horse with all fours off the ground, and looking closely at the text here, we can begin to discern some pretty amazing things that maybe we haven't noticed before. All right, let's move on. In Revelation 15:2, John talks about this glassy sea and fire. And then he goes on to talk about those who overcame the beasts. They're standing upon the glassy sea. Some would say crystal sea, right? This water and fire imagery, it's going to become very prominent later in Revelation where we talk about the lake of fire. More on that later. But for now, uh, this raises a question for me. Why is John using this imagery, right? Why is he using it? Where might he be borrowing it from? Well, there are several options. This glassy or crystal sea and the fire could be temple imagery. Right? We get both in the temple, the wash basin, the glassy sea, and uh, the fire on the altar, the smoke from the altar. Uh, or another option is Nero's palace. Now uh, He had the, a massive pool in the middle of his palace grounds, and he had fires burning around it all the time. Uh, another option would be Gehenna Valley, or the Valley of Hinnom, uh, which is in Jerusalem area. Or a fourth option, I guess, would be Exodus imagery. So maybe at some level, it's a mixture of all these that John's drawing together. I kind of lean in that direction, that we have a mixture of things going on. But before I say more about that, let me point out that the overcomers here are part of the faithful bride of Christ. And they're playing harps and joining in song with the 144,000 who were singing in Revelation 14. Now, this leads us to 15.3, which says that their song is the song of Moses. And the Lamb. 
Now, in Scripture, there are three songs of Moses. Psalm 90, Deuteronomy 32, and Exodus 15.2-19. Those are the three songs of Moses. So it leads to another question, right? Does John have one of these in mind? I think so. I think, if you remember, he's made a switch now from Genesis to Exodus. Right? I think Exodus 15, which follows right after the plagues, is in mind. And this fits well with that plague material of Exodus. So the Song of Moses, it follows right after those plagues. Exodus 15, 2-19 is what he's drawing on. It shares a lot of similarities to the song here that we read about in Revelation 15, actually. Um, which is uh, very cool if we pay attention. For instance, in Exodus 15 and Revelation 15, there are plagues, there are seas, there are acts of deliverance, there are songs of deliverance, there's singing by the seas, by the waters, there's fire by the sea. One scholar suggested that the lamb imagery in the song is drawn from the ritual of the temple in Jerusalem. There's some of that uh, imagery John's drawing on. Further, the singers in Revelation 15, 3-4 are portrayed as standing by the Sea of Glass, which may be reminiscent of the Red Sea uh, and Exodus, a clear Exodus connection. Another scholar has pointed out that Moses' song had been incorporated by this time into the temple worship services. And he also says that it was sung at the evening sacrifice on the Sabbath. Likewise, the ancient writer Philo, he mentions that this song was sung by an antiphonal group. Uh, with men singing and leading some of the stanzas while the women were singing in response. Even more, Exodus and Revelation, these songs are both victory hymns. And also, there was harping in the temple setting too. So you have that connection. But one of Nero's big things, if you go back and read some of the history of Nero, is that he was very fond of playing the harp. Uh, he went around competing in these competitions. And of course, he never lost. He, could, he would kill the judges if they didn't vote for him to win. But here, those who overcame him will be the ones harping and singing and being victorious. So again, there's a mixture of contexts. Continuing on, the content of the song here is, Great and amazing are your works, Lord God Almighty. Your paths are just and true, the King of the nations. Who will not fear, Lord, and glorify your name? Because only you are upright, because all the nations have come and will bow down before you, because they have seen your righteous deeds. Here, only the King of kings is bowed down to, not the beast or emperors, which we've been reading about, folks bowing down to the beast, right? Now, Let's keep going. In 5.5, 5, after the song event, John says he sees the temple in the sky. So more temple imagery. And in 15.6, the seven messengers, that is the, the full message-bearing Holy Spirit with the fullness of God's wrath, born from God's anger, the fullness of God's anger, he exists in the temple and he's dressed like a high priest. And in 15.7, part of the four living creatures, that is the bride, gives the spirit these vials or bowls that are brewed with God's anger. And in 15.8, the smoke arises from the vials, and the smoke is from the temple altar. I talked about that before in the past, how the priest enters into the Holy of Holies and he holds the censer filled with incense over the lid of the altar, the copperet, and as it burns, the smoke arises. And the smoke represents, as Revelation tells us, the prayers and the cries of the dead who are in Christ. It's the opposite, uh, or a contrast of the, with the smoke arising from the abyss, right? Which is dark and toxic. So these prayers of the dead in Christ, 
they fill the temple and no one can enter. It's symbolic of not being able to enter the fullness of God's presence until the Spirit finishes pouring out the fullness of God's wrath or the fullness of God's separation because that's what God's wrath is. It's separation, it's distance. And what I really want you to notice here is what the faithful in Christ do during this time. They're singing and playing music. They worship, right? In the midst of hardship, in the midst of Rome, in the midst of dwelling in a context largely void of God's presence, Rome, the Christians are singing and harping. Those in the thick of the hardship are singing and worshiping. Those who overcome sing. And their song is beautiful too. It stresses God's kingship, his justness, and more. And again, they sing, great and amazing are your works, God. Lord God Almighty, your paths are just and true, King of the nations. Who will not fear, Lord, and glorify your name? Because only you are upright. Because all the nations will come and bow down before you. Because they have seen your righteous deeds. This sort of singing, even right in the trenches of hardship, has always been part of the DNA of Christians. Always. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells the believers in 519 to speak to themselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And likewise, in Colossians 3.16, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. In James 5.3, we read, Is anyone happy? Let him sing psalms. That profound Christian thinker, Oswald Chambers, he once said, the real issue is not whether you have a voice, but do you have a song? And the answer for us is, yes, we have a song. And you know what? Our Wesleyan heritage, it's incredibly rich in that area. Our faith is a singing faith. We are a singing people. The great hymn writer, one of the founders of our movement, Charles Wesley, who was John Wesley's brother, he's one of the greatest hymn writers of all time. His songs were so theologically meaty. And one of the reasons I want us to get back to singing some hymns is that reason, they're meaty. Right? He wrote one song um, from Hymns on God's Everlasting Love where each member of the Trinity asks the a child of God a set of questions. It's so amazing and convicting. I want you to listen to this. Um, the sorts of uh, praise songs that we're singing these days, they don't even come close not even close to the depths of a song like this. It says this. This is God the Father speaking first. Sinners turn. Right? Repent. Sinners turn. Why will you die? God your maker asks you why. God who did your being give made you with himself to live. He the fatal calls demands asks the work of his own hands. Why ye thankless creatures why will ye cross his love and die? Sinners turn, why will you die? God your Savior asks you why. God, who did your souls retrieve, died himself that you might live. Will you let him die in vain? Crucify your Lord again? Why, ye ransomed sinners, why will you slight his grace and die? Sinners turn, why will you die? God the Spirit asks you why. God, who all your lives hath strove, wooed you to embrace his love. Will you not the grace receive? Will you still refuse to live? Why, ye long-sought sinners, why? Will you grieve your God and die? Our song, just like this one, is one of turning. 
It's turning away from sin and to God. It's repenting. And it's that repentance that in the midst of hardship allows us to keep going. It's confessing before God and self and the world the greatest been for story. If it hadn't been for God wooing us to himself and away from ourselves and our destruction, we'd have no hope. But our song is one of hope and it's one of victory. And Revelation reminds us that in the midst of hardship, we are a people who sing. We sing in the face of COVID-19. We sing at funerals in the face of death. We sing in hospital rooms. We're a singing people. And in just a moment, we're going to sing a song that's very familiar to all of you. A modern praise hymn, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. Simple, but still profound. This week, I learned of a moving story connected to this song. The author of, Moses, uh, the, author of the song, Moses, the author of the song, Matt Redman, is a well-known worship leader across the globe. And he was telling of this time when a few years ago on a trip to the U.S., uh, he, he read about his friend Stephen Curtis Chapman, another well-known worship leader, probably many of you have heard, that Stephen Curtis Chapman's five-year-old daughter died in an accident in their home driveway. And Matt Redman, who wrote this song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord, had sent a message to Stephen Curtis Chapman to encourage the family. But he didn't expect to hear back from him in the middle of this awful event. But he was, he was at the airport a couple days later. He's heading back home to England. And he got a phone call from Chapman while he was sitting there in the airport. And he answered the phone. He said, oh, Stephen, I'm so sorry to, to hear about Maria. You can't imagine how many people are praying for you and the family right now. I guess none of us have the right words to say right now. But I want you to know that we love you and we're thinking of you all constantly and Stephen responded, uh, thank you, Matt. You know, that means so much. And he said, I have a request. Is there any chance you're in America right now? Mary Beth and I were pondering the memorial service, and we wondered if there was any way that you could join us tomorrow in Nashville and lead your song, Blessed Be Your Name. And Matt Redman went on to say, one line from that song just played over and over in my mind, you give and take away. He said, I knew it was a brave and bold choice for them to sing this, but it struck me as evidence of who they were as a family. That even in the midst of all their pain and grief, they would choose to put a marker in the ground and sing those costly words you give and take away. He says, most times our lyrics don't cost much to sing, but I realized it would be a huge weight of faith for them to sing a lyric like this at a time like that. Every single person was moved by how they were still standing and still singing at a time like this during the service. Songs of faith and worship can be a gift, a window onto the heart of God and a weapon of truth to use in the darkest night. They can reach us when we're overwhelmed, when no logic, no words of comfort, and no rational explanation can ever really seem to help. They can be a gift when we're grieving, when we're facing unanswerable questions, or when we're sitting in the doctor's office listening to the word cancer being used to describe the reason for the failing health of a precious child. They can be a bridge songs between the pain and uncertainty of this world and the compassion and steadfastness of God himself. They can bring us into his presence, a place where we stand reassured that nothing but God and his love can overwhelm us. They can remind us of the unchanging truths that can sustain us, no matter how hard the problem and no matter how weary we've become from all the holding on. They remind us that God is closer than we know, even when life is stained by grief. 
And they can remind us that no matter what trials we may face, we can still choose to bless the Lord. We can still choose to bless the Lord. So in the midst of your grief, sing. In the midst of pain, sing. In the midst of hardship, sing. In the midst of trial, hurt, anguish, sadness, worry, and loss, sing. You know, I was surprised in thinking about this, that there wasn't an English word for singing during a hard time, singing amid hardship. Right? I mean, the blues, right? Blues kind of got close, but not quite what I was looking for. That's very melancholy. What about praise singing in the midst of hardship? So I made up a, our word of the week this week. It's adversinging. It means singing in the midst of adversity or hardship. Adversinging. We are a singing people, even in the midst of adversity. We're adversinging. You know, it's reported in ancient sources that Nero started the fire that burned Rome down. And then they blamed Christians, as I've told you. But that while Rome burned, Nero sat back playing his harp. In these verses that we, we looked at today, we're reminded that when Rome's burning and Christians are in the middle of it, as we talked about last week, and Christians are in the middle of that hardship. In the face of it all, they're singing and praising God. And likewise, in the face of it all, we shall sing and make music unto the Lord. We shall be a people who bless His name. So today, sing. Tomorrow, sing. This week, sing unto the Lord. Amen? Amen. Well, in lieu of a benediction this morning, let's sing one more song and bless his name together because if it hadn't been for Jesus, we'd have no hope at all and no reason to sing. Be blessed, brothers and sisters. Let's sing.